John 18, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Great, thanks, Steph, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris, one of the pastors here. Um, Welcome to Hiawatha. If you're brand new, like Leah was saying before, I want to extend a special welcome to you. Thanks for joining for one of our services. Uh, We are in the Gospel of John right now, uh, preaching-wise, which you just heard a reading from. We'll be in uh, chapter 18, 1 to 11 today. Uh, It's the final stretch, really. You've been in this book now for a while. Most of you are aware of that. Uh, It's the final stretch. We are kind of turning the corner from what is uh, commonly known as the farewell discourse and Jesus' high priestly prayer uh, in chapter 17. Uh, But between chapters 14 and 17, we have this kind of substantial... um, set of teachings and almost more of a monologue than a dialogue, but this kind of monologue and teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God, who he is, his impending arrest, and, and the judgment he's going to bear in our place. And, and now we're shifting. Now it's this kind of uh, passion narrative proper time where Jesus is going to be arrested. Passion is Latin for suffering. If you ever hear the phrase passion of the Christ, that's what it refers to. And so um, like that last song got at when we survey the wondrous cross, we're going to spend the better part of three to four months now basically doing that, like an extended study uh, in the rest of John, um, the, the rest of the book, looking at the death of Jesus and his burial and his triumphant resurrection, his appearance to people after he's raised, and then just what kind of bearing uh, that has on our life, like how important this is and how central it is uh, to the gospel writers, not just John's, but the gospel writer's message. How all the gospel writers end their gospels with this. That's not a, uh, not a coincidence. Uh, it is the most important thing. Jesus dying, being buried, rising again. That's why he came, and we'll start to see that. Uh, we've been talking about that for a, how long have we been in this series now? Uh, 18 months or long, maybe not quite that long, uh, but we, we're going to see it really unfold uh, now. So, um, so today we're going to look at the arrest of Jesus. Again, we're in the first part of chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible uh, or a phone app, please feel free to open there. Uh, we're in John 18, 1 to 11. I, want, I have a couple of sides to start with uh, narratively. Uh, John uh, is great at this. He's a, um, I, I've talked in the series about how he is uh, traditionally, John is known as the eagle gospel. Of, there's four gospels. There's four kind of heavenly creatures in the book of Ezekiel. And traditionally, they've kind of been lined up. And John is likened to the eagle because of his kind of high heavenly view 
on what's happening with Jesus. And so, um, and the other three have different angles. They, they don't contradict, they just have different kind of points of emphasis and so forth. Um, but uh, John, in his kind of high heavenly approach, uh, comes at things narratively here, which is um, really interesting. So, um, but I want to start with verse one. One of, one of the asides, just kind of look at how this is set up and how John chooses to do this, uh, where it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to cross the brook Kidron, uh, some translations say the Valley Kidron, but uh, same thing, into a garden, uh, which we know was an olive garden called Gethsemane, uh, where Jesus prayed. Uh, other uh, gospel, gospels say he sweat blood uh, because he prayed in earnest, knowing what is coming. That's, that's when this happens. And the disciples fall asleep. Uh, even though they were asked to kind of uh, keep watch, they fall asleep. Uh, there's important reasons for that. John doesn't choose to include it, so we're not going to look into that. Um, but it's, that's, what, that's when this happens as well. But they fall asleep right before his arrest. Now, what's interesting here in verse 1, I think, and what I'll call like um, maybe the theological optics of the whole thing is that you kind of, um, you have this uh, almost a, I've seen this movie before uh, type event. And I know we're, kind of, we're all bringing different like backgrounds to how much we've read the Bible here. But uh, this is one of those, I think I've seen this movie, movie before uh, type moments in the Bible. It's, it's another step, in other words, in a long line of stories where God helps his people cross bodies of water into lands of salvation. And so the image here in John 18, right up on the cusp of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, and all that's going to mean is precisely what Jesus came to do through his death. And that is bring sinners to God. Bring sinners across the dividing line uh, of sin and death back into a garden back into an, a new Eden, you could say, uh, with God. And, and the rest of the passage and the book will tell us more of the how behind that, but God's word to us in this one verse says symbolically uh, to us that Jesus came into the world to bring us home. That's really what he's going to do. What his death is going to mean is he's going to bring us back to himself, but it's going to be at great cost uh, to, to himself. All right, then in verses 2 and following, uh, the drama of the arrest of Jesus unfolds, uh, and it might not be a surprise, but it turns out trying to arrest the Son of God makes for quite the spectacle, uh, and quite the demonstration, demonstration I'll say, of um, human frailty, and things like futility, and misunderstanding, we'll talk about that later, and lots of self-righteousness. But because Jesus is here, uh, and we're dealing with him as well, and sort of, um, his response, in a way, to all of this and his contrast with it, we see boatloads of his grace uh, as well in this passage. And so we'll look at some of those things and pick up a few of those rocks today. Um, but the story, as you just heard, is basically it starts with Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who was there to betray him and point him out. Essentially, it's dark, and so he's needed to kind of say, that's the one uh, there that you want. So it starts with Judas showing up with a band of soldiers, um, Ready to, ready to do this. Uh, and if, if you think about uh, John here as the writer, you know, um, if you remember way back in the beginning in chapter one and the things he chooses to emphasize thematically, I think it's intentional and interesting that John includes mention of the soldiers having lanterns and torches. Um, and I think this is more than history for us. I think it's theology because of how this contrasts with the disciples being there with Jesus, who, according to John, is the light of the world. He's the torch of the world. He's the lantern 
of, of the world. And so it's kind of a literary contrast here between, on the one hand, lighting our own way, which leads to death and sin and betrayal of God in this case, and on the other hand, letting God be the only light that we need, which is to say, belief that the light of grace alone saves us from the darkness, not the feeble, self-saving torches that we fashion with the works of our hands. All right, then John uh, makes it painfully clear, as all four gospel writers do uh, when they recount his arrest, painfully clear that Jesus wasn't running. When this all happens, he's not kind of getting ready to turn and, and sprint away. Jesus wasn't denying that he was the one they were looking for. He knew very well what was about to happen. In fact, he helped it to happen. Jesus is orchestrating this event. And so, um, therefore, we can say it was the people's sin that arrested Jesus, but it was also Jesus' desire to be arrested. That's crucial to get here. Again, the, the gospel writers are at pains to show this. It might be kind of obvious to you. It might not. That's fine. But where, wherever you're coming from with this, if you know nothing about Jesus, see this. He is orchestrating it. He wants it to happen. He is willingly giving himself over uh, to be arrested. It's very uh, Superman-esque. I made this meme last Good Friday. It's one of the coolest things I've ever done. Just kidding. Um, but it's sort of like this, where Superman's arrested, he's letting it happen, right? And even more with Jesus, because Jesus has no kryptonite. Uh, so, but, but this is made clear in verse 5, where it says, Jesus says, I am he, in response to uh, the question of um, who, they, who they want to arrest. And everyone, right when he says, I am he, falls to the ground. It's like his words become this strong gust of wind that literally push people's bodies over and they all fall back on top of each other. Um, and this happens because I am is God's divine self-disclosure in the Bible. This has come up a little bit in this series, I think. Um, there's a lot of I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is kind of the final one, but he's not saying I am like the door or the bread of life or the resurrection in the life like he says elsewhere. He's just saying I am. This is like God's name in the Bible. God is the great I am. And uh, and biblically, people fall down in God's presence all the time, like in the Old Testament. And so what we're seeing here is another replaying of this. We're seeing Jesus uh, show his deity, and we're seeing Jesus graciously flex here, not to crush his enemies, but to show that he's willingly letting himself be arrested, which in turn means he wants to die, which in turn means that he came into the world to die for sinners like you and me. That's why that's important to see. Uh, it, the most important thing to see is that Jesus loves you and that he came to bear, bear the brunt. But behind that is his willingness to be, his like letting himself be handcuffed like Superman. That, that's important because of what it leads to, which is his uh, desire for us, his love. It's almost a romantic kind of love here uh, as a husband to a wife. And so... Um, all right, so now three big points of theology. With all that said, to kind of set this up, I have three big points of theology uh, right from the mouth of Jesus from the latter part of the passage uh, that highlights this even further. And John's inclusion of some of these things teach us about grace, teach us about ourself, about our own misunderstandings of, of things, whether you're a Christian or not, um, and then what the right way is. And not just the right way of thinking, but the right way of receiving. And, and so we'll get some of that today here as well. The first is, 
The phrase, let these men go, let these people go, in verse 8, speaking of his disciples um, and sort of the contrast there. It's a drama, uh, it's intense. This is uh, the point in the movie where the hero says, it's me you want, let these people go, right? Uh, and then the, the, the bad guy or the villain doesn't let them go to kind of dial out the tension in the story. That's what usually happens. But how many times have we seen this in a movie, right? If, it, is it, if it's me you want, let these people go, that kind of thing. That's actually exactly what's happening here. But here in the gospel story, they are let go because Jesus is actually demanding it. He's not giving them a choice. He's God. He's saying, no, you will let them go. Like I'm, he, He's speaking our liberation uh, and our freedom into existence. This is... Uh, nothing less than a blatant display of divine heroism, courage, and love. Like, if there was a, a, a gospel uh, point here to this first part, it would be whatever haunts you the most, whatever hell you dream of in your worst nightmares, Jesus says to all of that, it's me you want. Let them go. And he walks into it for us, taking our place so that we can go free. That's what he's like. And that's actually another kind of um, turning up of the dial here, maybe a shift for some of you uh, to take or to, to be reminded of is this is what God is like, not just in John 18, but now today in your life. This is why we read the Bible, not to study what God was, but what God is. That's, that's a big difference. We don't read the Bible to just understand what he was like in someone else's life, but what he is like in the same way in ours. This is why we do theology, not just why we do it, but why it becomes, where it becomes exciting and important for us. And that is in this passage, the answer to that, or sort of the way that John flushes that out in chapter 18, is that God, through Jesus, is for us and not against us. And Jesus speaks back to dark angels who accuse he speaks back to and against the sin that binds. And even to the state of separation that exists between God and sinners, he speaks to all of that and says, let them go. And uh, if you know the Exodus story in the Old Testament, it sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? Where God says to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go over and over again. Let them go, let them go, let them go. And that's not a coincidence because here we know that there's a new exodus happening. There's a second exodus in the story, a new kind of liberation. But Pharaoh, or Egypt, is no longer the bully. We're on to bigger and badder things. But Jesus is the new Moses. He is the new deliverer. And he's here to go toe-to-toe with sin, demanding our freedom. And also to say that he is not here to primarily or in, really in any way to be a, like a life coach or an advice giver or a moral teacher, uh, nor is Jesus here to be a judge who's keeping score. Instead, he is a brunt-taking liberator. That's what this passage is teaching us. Jesus came into the world to be a brunt-taking liberator, to speak against our biggest problems, to speak against that which binds us, to go toe-to-toe with the evil that ensnares our heart and to absolve, to dissolve, to destroy, to rebuke it and to go to war on our behalf that we might, that we might go free. And so if in any way you have like a, like a moment of, that's, that's actually, there's power in that, there's beauty in that, whether you see that in a literature or a movie or better yet right here, um, this is sacrifice, this is heroism, 
This is what God is like. Uh, better than any human has ever demonstrated these same traits. This is what Jesus is like for you and me in real time uh, right now in this very room. All right, the second thing he says is put your sword away uh, to Peter and I would say in a way to all of us uh, as well. This is from verse 11, but kind of backing up to verse 10 as well and to remind you what just happened here. Um, in verse 10, it says that Peter, having a sword, which was probably a Roman short sword, pulls it out and essentially says, I got this, Jesus, and starts to fight off the mob of Jesus' enemies um, uh, himself to like the best of his ability, which is not very impressive. Uh, he only got one ear out of it. Um, but cutting off the ear of the servant of, of the high priest. And so what likely happened here was that Peter was literally trying to kill him. A Roman short sword was a stabbing weapon, not a slicing weapon. And so he was go probably going for the eyeball or the forehead or the neck. And what happened is that the Malchus turned his head the last minute and, and he got the ear instead. Does that make sense? He kind of dodged it and, and then Peter just sliced the ear off. I always thought, you know, reading this, I remember like a long time ago, I thought that Peter was here to send a message and like take just the ear there's more coming, you know? There's more where that came from, that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not first of all, that, that, that's not what this is saying in the broad context. If you kind of smell the air a bit, there's much more urgency to it. But even if it was, like, that's an amazing shot. If you're going for the ear and actually get it in that moment where the guy does not want his ear to be cut off, he's not going for the ear. He's going for the neck. He's going to kill. Um, but the guy moves his head last minute and, and, and the ear. Okay. Um, what's more important here, though, is that what Peter is, what Jesus says back to him. And I think what happens next then is the great twist in the passage, you could say. Instead of an attaboy or a nice work, Peter, he gets a stop it. What are you doing? Put your sword away. Peter, if you're keeping score, uh, this is another mark on your sheet, whatever sheet you have for this, um, Peter, yet again, fundamentally misunderstands Christianity, misunderstands the gospel. And there's a couple layers to his misunderstanding. I'll walk us through kind of quick here. On one level, at the core of the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, which Peter is trying to prevent from happening. And so Peter is a picture of someone who's trying to embrace a crossless Christianity. It's a picture of someone who's trying to, and this, this could be a Christian thing, it's mostly, of course, not, but it could be something for a Christian or a non-Christian. Someone trying to embrace a version of Christianity that decentralizes the cross of Jesus, that waters it down, that takes it off of center stage. But a crossless Christianity is an abomination because to take away the cross is to add, by definition, to add us and what we do to the equation. You can't not do that. Uh, to de-emphasize, it's what Peter's doing. He's fighting for God. He's using the works of his hands to bring about some sort of deliverance by de-emphasizing, trying to circumvent what Jesus really came to do, which was to fight for us and to die for our sins. To de-emphasize the cross is to emphasize us and what we bring to God. Again, there's, there's no way to get around that. And that's why it's an abomination. That's why it's rebuked. That's why the Bible is just so keen on showing that it's God who saves, not man. 
And that leads me to the second point, uh, which is the gospel is the good news of God's grace, which is Jesus' one-way love that we never cooperate with or that we need to reciprocate perfectly in order to be saved. But what's happening here is Peter is trying to help Jesus. And um, this, I, w- I don't want to say should because I know this is like a new story or maybe Christian theology is new to some of you and that's totally fine. Um, but I'll, but it, this, as we start to understand the gospel, this starts to send up red flags. When you see someone trying to help God as if he's deficient or in any way assist him in the work of salvation, but that, that's a figurative salvation, a story-based one, like in the Old Testament, a type like in the Old Testament or the reality itself like here with Peter. Peter's trying to help Jesus. You can almost like picture Peter uh, putting his free arm in front of Jesus to hold him back and the other arm like this with the sword, which is probably exactly what happened, right? Uh, he said, I got this, Jesus. Hold Jesus back. Just get behind me. I've got you. And he once stabbed for, and he stabbed for Malchus in the, in the face, all right? And in one sense, even if it's partly from a good place of I love my friend, this is still the antithesis, the opposite of Christianity and the epitome of sin. No one helps God, period. No one helps God. No one meets God in the middle. Story after story in the Bible reveals this, stretching all the way back to the beginning of Genesis where it's Abraham trying to help God provide an heir by sleeping with uh, his wife's servant Hagar and all that that represented. Or later in 2 Samuel where Uzzah stretches his hand out to study the Ark of the Covenant when the oxen tripped and it's wobbling and Uzzah said, don't worry God, I'll hold you up. I'll help you not to fall. And he's struck dead. Or even earlier in John, where Peter insists that he wash Jesus' feet versus letting Jesus wash his. This is just three of the many examples. Replacing God with self, helping God with self, blending God with self, proving ourselves to God with self, working our way to God with self, thinking that we stay saved or sanctify ourselves with self is the essence of sin. It's the core of what the devil wanted when he lied to Adam and Eve and told them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, becoming like God themselves. It's the very thing that Jesus is coming against here with his death and resurrection. When Jesus says, put the sword back in your sheath, he's not being pro-pacifism, he's being anti-legalism. He's saying, put your works of righteousness back in its sheath and let me do it all for you. I don't need you. I love you. There's a difference. When it comes to God, there is a stark difference, and we need to know it. We need to rest in it. We need to see it and believe it. And Peter here, on behalf of us all, gets the rebuke so that we, when in any way, when we misunderstand, and we do all the time, when we think that what we do or what we don't do, what we abstain from, what we engage in, how we think, how well we pray or worship, Uh, all this stuff actually does something for us before God, uh, that we come back to this story and we see Jesus say, put all that back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not die for the sins of the world? Are you trying to prevent it or add to it or blend yourselves with it or help it? See, what what kind of religiosity or spirituality comes out the other end of that horrific assembly line? 
Uh, it's an abomination. Uh, any kind of blending of the love of God and the willing sacrifice of God with the efforts of human hands uh, is a ghastly abomination that Jesus is coming into the world to die for those of us who have, which is all of us, who have thought that way and acted that way, but also to replace it. Because when you look at the cross and you truly look at it, you can't think, wow, look at what I've done. It's impossible, right? You can't look at the Son of God there. I mean, on a sin level, we crucified him, right? So there's that. I just mean, in terms of if you understand it in a good way, like God is saving me there, we can't look at it and say, look at what it, because no one's up there dying like with him as though we die for our sins or we die for other sins. And so Peter then gets the message, but it's not just Peter. Uh, if we're keeping score, it's for us as well. This is a mirror. Um, and God is lovingly course correcting. He's saying, um, I love you, and my love is one way, and it's always that way. This doesn't change when you become a Christian. Uh, this is always the case. All right, then he moved into, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit, but then he moves this last part, which is, shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given to me. It refers to his crucifixion. Um, backing up a little bit, John's gospel is the only one of the four that names the servant who got his ear cut off. It says in a parenthetical that his name was Malchus. And when people are named, it personalizes the story a bit more, right? Uh, we don't know if he was dragged into this uh, or if he was all in or somewhere in the middle but uh, either way, he's on the wrong side of history like we all are with God. But Jesus protects him. This is the story of Malchus. Um, in other accounts, gospel accounts, Jesus reaches out his hand and heals his ear. It's this amazing moment uh, and, and miracle where Jesus not only says, Peter, put your sword away, but he reverses Peter's works. He re reverses Peter's actions and uh, heals the enemy instead. So what this is, like on one level, is a blatant, beautiful display of enemy love. Um, and it tells us about the gospel that Jesus is not here in the world to reward his friends, but to love his enemies. That's another twist that the gospel brings to us. If we in no way bring anything to God, then it's impossible for him to reward his friends. He, he has no friends. He only has enemies but enemies that he makes his friends. He wins them over with love, and they change uh, status, right? But I share all this to say, uh, there's actually a tale of uh, two Malchuses here um, that you see elsewhere, too, in different ways. I won't go into all of them, uh, but if you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about. But in one sense, so the two Malchuses, in one sense, I talked about the one already. Malchus is a picture of us, uh, enemies of God, but loved by Jesus and being reached out to and, and healed. Though we've been stabbed uh, in a way by our sin, um, by accusation, by the enemy, by the law, it's harmed us. Um, the, grace that, that the gracious hand of God reaches out uh, to, to heal our ear. Um, the other, though, Malchus in the, in the passage is, um, is Jesus himself. Uh, Malchus is a picture of him and the great act of substitutionary atonement and love he's about to demonstrate on the cross. See, Jesus is uh, the true servant of the true high priest who was attacked by self-righteous men, pierced and cut for our sins so that we can be healed. 
Uh, Malchus actually means king as well. And so Malchus and Jesus are actually two kings as well in kind of a literary way. It's kind of cool. Um, Two kings who are pierced. uh, Two kings who are struck. Um, But Jesus, of course, being the true one. And so where Malchus walks away with healing, uh, Jesus is the one who bears the brunt. Isaiah uh, 52 says, or 53, 4 to 5 says, Surely he has borne our, speaking of Jesus, he has borne our infirmities, carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Also later, just a chapter later in the Gospel of John, we see John um, kind of linguistically give a nod to this, where uh, it says in John 19, 3, they came up to Jesus saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and same word as in, in um, our passage today, struck him with their hands. Um, th- this is not a, a vocab coincidence, you guys. I know a lot of you are new to this stuff. That's great. Uh, remember this when you read. There's no coincidences in, in the Bible. When it comes to language, there's no coincidences. Uh, this is like the only word that would have possibly used, and so John just happened to use it twice. Like What he's saying is, Malchus was struck, And he was pierced, just like later Jesus would be struck and pierced. Both kings, both priestly figures uh, in in a way, both servant figures in a way. Um, But where the one goes free, the other uh, is led to the gallows, uh, to the cross, uh, to truly be struck for for our sins. This is the cup uh, from the Father, the cup of wrath that he had to drink. If you are a fan of um, Harry Potter, like Dumbledore drinking the potion of despair uh, to access the horcrux and destroy it. Uh, it's that, that kind of idea. Um, if if Jesus' death is about substitution, then this is precisely why Jesus protects and heals this guy. Uh, he's not just saying no to Peter, but no, piercing isn't for this man to suffer. I'm the one who's supposed to be pierced. And so he stops the piercing in its tracks. He erases it, reverses it, heals it, advocates even a bit for this Malchus guy. And instead says, I'm the one who's supposed to be pierced. You've got it wrong. I'm the one who's supposed to fight for you, not you for me. You've got it wrong. Push your sword away and let me drink the cup of suffering for him, Malchus, and for you, Peter, and for those who are near and those who are far, and for the whole world. Because see, it doesn't matter if you're near or far to God. You both need, both people need the same grace. Uh, Ephesians 2 says this. Peter's close, Malchus is far. Uh, they both are misunderstand. They both need Jesus. Uh, there's no partiality when it comes to grace. It's just some people get it and some don't based on the love of God. It, that, that's what it is. It's like um, it, it comes to the bad and the good, not just the good which is what religion would say or our works would say. Uh, in this case, it comes to the near and the far. It's, it's like the wind blows in John 3. You can't plan for it. You can't calculate it. You can't do the math for it. You can't predict it. It's not a top clicking. It's a wind blowing. It's God working in the world to save us. That's what the gospel is, completely on his own, without any assistance from us whatsoever, ever. And so we breathe in the free air of that. I, I think... If there was a final gospel word here um, to leave you all with, I think it would be 
Christianity is not about you defending God. It's not about you helping God, fighting for God, or proving to God your allegiance. Instead, it's about God coming into the world, defending you, helping you, fighting for you, and proving his love for you by dying in your place. Okay, so let let me say this very clearly. You cannot blend those two things. Oil and water. And so what happens then for when we start to receive and believe this, what it means to be a Christian, um, what it means to be a Christian is we start to believe that. We continue to believe that. We grow in that. We breathe in the free air of that. And we live our life. It's this beautiful, abstract, confusing Uh, constantly reminding journey through thick and thin that all of that is true. That God's love will never change. It's completely given, not earned, and it's completely impartial. Given not, not on the basis of anything you've ever done or not done, but simply on his love for you. That's what John 18 says. That's what John 18 means. In the craziest, most scandalous, most ridiculous, most arresting of Superman kind of passages, That's what this is saying. And the climax is still coming. Jesus didn't die yet, but this is is on the cusp. And this too is a picture. This too is a foreshadowing. This too is a word picture and a type of what's coming, Malchus being one of them, um, but of course the the, the stabbing being the principal one. So let me pray for us and we'll respond and close with one last song. Uh, Jesus, thank you for uh, John 18. Thank you for what it says and for what it shows. Uh, thank you that it uh, reflects, uh, it's, a, it's another iteration in the long line of body of water crossing salvation stories. Garden of Eden re-entry uh, is happening here. Uh, that The prophets were right, this was going to happen someday and we're seeing a glimpse of that uh, here as well. We have another Moses, another deliverer, a new exodus, a new deliverance, an escape from sin and death uh, is, is happening. And in your words, maybe most explicitly and most beautifully, um, speak love to us. They say about us, to evil, let them go. And we are, but you are not. And that is the great twist. We are let go, but you are not. Malchus is healed, but you are not. Though both stabbed, both harmed. Um, you went to the gallows, you went to the, you went to the hill, you went to the cross, you went to Calvary uh, on, on our behalf. Um, God, please help us to understand that love better. Um, It's bigger than all of us think in this room combined, period. Your love is bigger than all of us can can fathom in in this life, and yet we can grow. And so I think of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3 is that they would grow in the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God, that that's what Christians would do, is that's what we'd pray for. That's what we would labor towards is growing in our knowledge of how big the cross is and the love of God. Not moving on from it, not adding to it, but continuing to receive and seeing just how big of and beautiful of a thing it is and how much we need it, desperately like oxygen every day. Uh, In Christ we pray, amen.